All right. Well, we have the joy of starting something new this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Or you can pull out your sermon insert. It says, Acts, the spreading flame. As we embark on this, very likely, multi-year adventure, um, I thought it wise to start our time this morning with another adventure that you may be aware of. That is the adventure contained in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. The Hobbit tells the story of a hobbit. The hobbit's a half man, a small man named Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo teams up with the wizard Gandalf and 13 dwarves as they attempt to retake the dwarves' treasure and homeland from the treacherous evil dragon, Smaug. Tolkien opens The Hobbit this way. Quote, This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because they were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This, talking about the Hobbit, this is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. What ensues after this, if you've read it or watched the okay film adaptation of The Hobbit, what ensues is a lengthy scene of of those 13 dwarves arriving one at a time with a knock at Bilbo's door at the behest of Gandalf. And without the permission or knowledge of Bilbo, these dwarves arrive one at a time at his house. It's kind of a comical scene. Another knock, and Bilbo's like, again? Dwalin, Balin, Philly, Killy, Dory, Nori, Ori, Owen, Glowin, Bifer, Bomber, and Thorin arrive one at a time. Bilbo's home then functions as the starting base the launching pad for this unexpected adventure. Now, during the the retelling of the dwarves' situation and their, their, uh, their desire to take their homeland and what happened to them, the dwarves sing a song. You can imagine the deep, humming, drumming voice of them singing about the misty mountains, the caverns in which they lived, their lost treasure, and the fire of the dragon, Smaug, that drove them out. Tolkien continues, quote, As they sang, the hobbit felt the love of beautiful things, made by hands and by cunning and by magic, moving through him. A fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. Then something Tukish woke up inside of him. Tukish, that's the adventurous side of his lineage. Something Tukish woke up inside of him, and he wished to go and see the great mountains and hear the pine trees and the waterfalls and explore the caves. Bilbo wanted to wear a sword instead of a walking stick. In a similar fashion this morning, 
we are going to study, in my estimation, the greatest adventure ever told. The, the greatest journey that's ever been told. It's the story of how you came into existence. It's the story of which we are a part. It is the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells the journey, the unexpected journey, often, of God's first church members as they set the world ablaze for the fame of Jesus. We're going to be in Acts for a while now and study and meditate upon and digest this amazing and yet in many ways unexpected journey. In it, we're going to see the Lord ascend to heaven. The Holy Spirit filled the hearts of God's people. 3,000 converted to Christ in a day. The gospel of Jesus transformed people from all walks of life and numerous ethnicities. In fact, Luke, the writer of Acts, we'll get to that in a second, will mention 32 countries, 54 cities, and 95 different people. We're going to see the Lord give life and the Lord Jesus take life. We're going to see prayer meetings, sermons, angels, magicians, demons. The church started. What even is the church? That word's rarely used in the Gospels. We're going to visit Palestine, Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. We'll walk the streets of Jerusalem, Antioch, Philippi, Corinth, Ephesus, and that great center of philosophy and learning, Athens. We're going to see salvation history shift from a Jewish centeredness to a global movement. We're going to see the New Testament church spring to life and spread like wildfire to the ends of the earth. We are going to see, friends, a small band of men and women, not unlike Bilbo and the dwarves, empowered by God from heaven, change the world. And also, like the dwarves' song with Bilbo, as he was affected by their singing, we as we study this book, are meant to have a deep spiritual awakening within us. A deep longing and jealous love for God and his people awaken within us as we study this journey. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 is the topic of our study this morning and it's going to be the setup. It's going to be the preparation for this amazing, unexpected journey, this adventure that we are on together. In Acts 1, we are going to see that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus gives his redeemed people heavenly power for a global mission. And to study that main point, that big idea, I want to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 in three headings. So the first one, a salvation accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is verses 1 through 5. Follow along as I read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. To understand this more, I think we've got to understand the first phrase. In the first book, O Theophilus. The first book that's being talked about here is the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. What we are studying in the book of Acts is book two. Luke, the physician, historian, theologian, and the missionary companion of Paul wrote a two-volume work. One work, one book in two volumes, appropriately called Luke-Acts. And for us to understand this, I want us to be reminded of how the two volumes began in Luke chapter 1. I think I included this in your insert. Look at it with me. First four verses of this two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke begins, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." When we put those two things together, the, the introduction of the two-volume work, Luke chapter 1, and the first words of this second volume, the book of Acts, we're reminded of who the author is, who the recipient is, and what the purpose of all of it is. First, it's the author is Luke. The gospel of Luke and the, the Acts of the Apostles is written by Luke. Ever since the second century on until very recently, there's been widespread agreement that Luke is the author. And his method is thorough in writing this, we could say. It includes his own experience. This is fascinating. The book of Acts will shift in chapter 16 from third person to first person because it includes Luke himself as he joins Paul in the journeys. His own experiences are here. Luke's research also includes interviewing eyewitnesses as Luke 1 included. I think he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. You can imagine why, because of the lengthy birth narrative in Luke chapter 1 and 2. He talked to Mary, reported on it. He probably interviewed John Mark, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter and John, as well as Paul. He did thorough research, friends. He did his homework to give us what we have here. He's also a scholar. Linguists and Greek nerds will tell you that the Greek of Luke is like none other. His prose and narrative is advanced. He is sharp. He's a scholar, and he's a theologian. All throughout this series, we are going to learn things about God, learn things about ourselves. Luke is portraying history, true history, and it's full of theology for us. The recipient, you might have heard his name twice, Theophilus. The name means loved by God or loving God. It's led some to believe that the audience uh, actually is just anyone who loves God, that this person wasn't real, it's possible. I tend to think that Theophilus was an actual person. He's an actual man, a benefactor, wealthy, who employs Luke to do this research, to write this account for him. And so Luke is writing this with the audience of Theophilus, but in so doing, he's writing true history with a theological and spiritual emphasis for all Christians. 
of all ages, all lovers of God. And we're told why. Why does Luke give this to us? What's the purpose of all that we're doing? In Luke 1 verse 4 it says, certainty. So that you would have certainty to know the person and the work of Jesus. Friends, Luke Acts provides assurance to the truthfulness of Jesus and what he said. Certainty, rock solid assurance. The last thing I want you to know from this, these opening verses is verse one. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The word began there is what I want to draw your attention to. If you wanted to underline it or circle it, I wouldn't be upset with you because it is in an emphatic position. As you're reading this in the original language, it pops out off the page. I, Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Book one, Luke's gospel detailed all that Jesus started to do and started to teach. What is the implication? Luke is saying that here in volume two, the book of Acts details all that Jesus continues to do and continues to teach. And he's doing it through his Holy Spirit, through his people, through his church. That's why when we study this, Jesus is the one who chooses the apostle who replaces Judas. Jesus is the one who preaches through Peter in Acts 2. Jesus is the one who takes the life of Ananias and Sapphira. We'll deal with that when we get there. Jesus is the one who appoints leaders. Jesus is the one who brings converts to Christianity. Jesus is the one who spreads his church. Jesus continues to do and teach through his people, through us. This is where we come to a little bit of a title problem. I just mentioned it because just about every book on Acts will mention this. The book is called The Acts of the Apostles, and I will probably call it that out of habit. It's a fine title. But as we study this, the better title might be something like the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. Or better, the Acts of Jesus by the Spirit in and through his church. Let me give you another one. Let's just get longer. This one's from John Stott. This one's my favorite one. The continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his Apostles. You can see it just gets a little cumbersome at this point. So Acts it is. But I don't want us to lose sight of the reality that we're studying the acts of the risen and ascended Jesus by the power of his spirit, the spirit of Jesus in and through his people. And that's actually the point of the second heading that we're gonna look at, verses six through eight. A mission empowered by the spirit of Jesus. Verses six through eight, will you look at that as I read them? So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel? Sorry. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end 
of the earth. Verse 6 says, when they'd come together, just ahead, if we've read ahead, in verse 12, we're told that that coming together is on the Mount of Olives, the Mount called Olivet. It's an important location. In just a few moments, we're going to see something really crazy happen. But they ask a question. Now, I do want to pause and make an aside here. It's super easy to make fun of the disciples, right? Especially Peter, putting his foot in his mouth quite a bit. They do seem dull at times, but I actually want to be slow to do that here. And I'll tell you why. I feel for them. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, argues that there are as many errors as there are words in that question. (laughs) He's largely right, and I'm really, really slow to disagree with the John Calvin. And I actually get what he's going at here. But I want to say I can't help but understand their question. Jesus died for sinners on the cross, and he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he spends 40 days talking to them about the Holy Spirit that is going to come upon them and the kingdom of God that is here. What do a bunch of Jews think when they hear all of this language? The kingdom is here. A new King David's going to rise up. The promise of the Father from heaven. The Spirit is going to come upon us. The Jewish community thinks it's here. The golden age. The new David is here. God is going to defeat our enemies. Take that, Rome. God's going to put his Messiah King, the greater David, on the throne. Give us the Holy Spirit. Establish peace. It's here. Yes. Is now the time, Jesus? Jesus says, yes, but not yet. Yeah, no. Because their expectations were that of instantaneous gratification, right now, all in once. Defeat Caesar, overthrow Rome, bring it now, come on, right now. Jesus says, yes, the kingdom of God is here, but you don't get it, it's coming in two phases. The already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here in Jesus' coming. His perfect life, his miracles, his death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. And yet, it's not yet fully here. There's still one more phase that we're waiting for. The return of Jesus from his heavenly throne to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Yes, but no. Yes, but not in the way that you think. And we're going to explore over the coming weeks what exactly that coming kingdom looks like as it spreads. But verse 8 is what I want you to see now. This is a super important verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the verse in your Bible to highlight for the book of Acts. For two main reasons. One, it is the explanation of our power source. The fuel for our faith and our strength. It is the person, person, I'm saying that intentionally, the person. Not the force, not the glue, not the invisible ghost. The person that we call the spirit. And secondly, this verse is so important because it's the program for the entire book of Acts. 
We just saw the table of contents in verse eight. Let me just make a couple comments on both of those. First, the person of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will receive the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that in a couple weeks in Acts chapter 2. But I just want to make a comment that that coming of the Holy Spirit is a long-expected fulfillment of prophecy. They're not surprised by this. Did you notice? Who's a spirit? I've never heard that before. The Holy Spirit was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And the Spirit's been around. He's on page one of our Bibles. The story of creation. The Spirit is active in creation. The Holy Spirit was at work in God's Old Testament church, we could call them, Israel. He was working faith in the Old Testament saints. He was helping them persevere. But something is changing now. Something greater is happening in just a few verses in Acts chapter two, and that is that the Holy Spirit is coming in a greater, permanent reality to indwell the members of his church. The Holy Spirit is coming to permanently live in the people of Jesus. But again, this was talked about beforehand. I gave you just one example. I picked one from Isaiah 44 verse three. God through his prophet Isaiah, says there's going to come a day when I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That's happening in our unexpected journey of the book of Acts. And it's been happening ever since, the spirit being poured out. I could have also included in there Isaiah 32, 15, Joel 2, 28, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. The Spirit is all over the prophets, and it's happening now in Jesus. But it's also an important verse, verse 8, because like I said, it is paradigmatic for the entire book of Acts. What do I mean by that? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. First, notice witnesses. That word means to witness, to testify, to to make known, to give an account. The mission of the church and the mission of the people of God, as we're going to see in Acts, empowered by the Spirit of God, is to give witness to Jesus Christ and all that he has done. We are to make much of, to testify Give account of the person and works of Jesus who was crucified, risen, ascended, and he's now currently reigning in glory. It is a verbal witness. Yes, we live Jesus. Yes, we show Jesus. But to be witnesses is to open our mouths and speak of him who is beautiful and glorious and worthy and who saved us. We getting this from 1 Peter 2, 9, we could say are a display people. The church, Peter uses the language of priests. We're like a kingdom of priests on display for the world. Come check out what it looks like to be forgiven, free, and restored. To love one another well. Witness to Jesus. We have a spiritual mission, friends. What I want to draw your attention to is the Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That is... The mission statement. What we're going to see in this unexpected journey 
as a handful of people in Jerusalem spread to millions across the globe and billions through time. And guess what happens throughout the book of Acts? Exactly verse 8. Acts 2 through 7 is Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 12 is Judea and Samaria. Acts 13 to the end of the book is the end of the earth, known to them at the time. And it doesn't stop there. Though Acts 28 does stop in Rome, Paul's eyes are lifted to Spain and beyond, and we know that the mission of the church continued beyond the city of Rome. How do I know that? You're here. That's why this unexpected journey is so important and so crucial because it's how you got here. The book of Acts is going to tell us how the message of Jesus got to your parents if you were raised in a Christian home. The message of Acts tells us how the good news of Jesus got to your and my ears. This is the story of an unexpected and yet great adventure. We are called, friends, as the church, until Christ sees fit to return, we are on a mission called to be a light to the nations here and abroad. I use this word importantly and and, and intentionally. We should consume ourselves. Consume ourselves with the spiritual calling that Christ puts on the church to be witnesses of him. Enjoy him, make much of him. Delight in him, tell others about him. Love him and show him. We, as the church, are disciples who make disciples. That is the calling and the mission of the church, a light to the nations, and we do it together. But what's our hope in all of this? Are we going to make it? Are we going to do it? Is Jesus with us in all of this? That's our last heading. Number three, a hope strengthened by the ascended Lord. Oh, this is so cool. Verses nine through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is what we call the ascension. It is really, really important to Luke. Why? Because he closes book one with it. The last words of Luke's gospel is the ascension. We'll end our time with looking at that. But then Acts volume two opens. Don't forget, ascension. And yet, the ascension is a vastly understudied topic. That's part, part observation, part confession on my behalf. I love talking about the cross and the resurrection. I love speaking of the church and our mission. When was the last time you spent unhurried time thinking and dwelling on the ascension? 
As a matter of fact, I surveyed five of the most popular and, and well done, in my opinion, study Bibles this past week. Study Bibles will often include articles in them, teachings on vital things um, uh, in theology. The, the articles in these five study Bibles that I looked at included holiness, the Trinity, authority of Scripture, Satan, the fall of man, total depravity, covenants, David got one, the image of God, the soul, election, Holy Spirit, regeneration, spiritual warfare, on and on and on and on. Good things. Not one of them had an article on the ascension. The ascension, friends, these verses, the ascension is the truth that Christ, risen from the dead, ascends to his heavenly throne to rule over all creation and sends his spirit to inhabit his people on earth. And in so doing, Jesus, who is on the throne, is everywhere present through his spirit who throughout the rest of the New Testament is often called the spirit of Jesus or the spirit of Christ. The ascension, as one pastor puts it, is not a departure of the son, but a divine relocation of the son. He goes and he sends the spirit. The mission ignites. So there's this kind of trippy and hard to understand reality that in, in heaven right now, Human and divine are side by side. Jesus is in one place, sitting on the throne, ruling at the right hand of the Father, and yet, through his spirit, that same Jesus is everywhere. He's in a couple hundred people right now. That risen Jesus is with us, and he's on the throne. It was more advantageous for Jesus to go and send the spirit than it was for him to stay on earth, bound to one physical location. And this was prophesied long before. Actually, in the book that we just finished up, a little mini study on, Daniel chapter seven. Look with me at that amazing chapter. Daniel's prophesying this exact thing that we just read. And as I read these two verses, I want you to notice clouds, son of man, taking the throne and authority. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus the Christ. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, Jesus the Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Oh, friends, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is good news. And we just saw it happen in Acts 1, 9, and 11. One like a son of man riding on clouds. Don't let that go by you too quickly. Going to the ancient of days, God the Father, who then gives him the kingdom to rule. <coughs> Excuse me. 
This scene, friends, is the truth that Jesus is on the throne. He's praying for us by name. He's guiding every dust particle as to where it should go. Ruling the nations. There's not a king or president that has anything on this king. As a matter of fact, this king puts all those kings into power. This Jesus is guiding history exactly where it should go. And because he's on the throne and sends the spirit, that same Jesus is with us right now. He is near. Reigning king, near. High and lifted up, inside of us. Speaking to us, leading us, empowering us for mission. In Acts chapter one, I just want you to see clouds and those two strangers. The cloud. Verse nine, as they look up, Jesus is lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, this is really important. Because this is not a normal cloud. I think when I read it, you probably thought of those big white things up in the, up in the sky. We've met clouds before in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, a cloud leads the people of God. What is that cloud? It's, it's a symbol of divine presence. It's like this picture of God himself leading his people through the wilderness. We just saw a cloud in Daniel chapter seven. It is the son of man riding on the cloud. It is God, a picture of God's authority and reign. We see a cloud in book one. Luke's gospel, chapter nine, Jesus goes up another mountain with Peter, James, and John, and it's the scene called the transfiguration. From a sliver of time, Jesus' glory is shown to them, and they hear from heaven the voice of the Father. And those three disciples are like, what is going on? A cloud envelops them. Where God is, clouds are. This is a divine thing going on. This is God's stuff, not an ordinary cloud. God's presence. And here's where, I don't know if I'm gonna make people mad or just confuse you. Talk to Roger, email roger at newcityindy.org with any questions. I don't think it's helpful for us to think of the ascension as Jesus floating up, 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 up into outer space. It's not what happened. Anybody think that? It's okay, I did too. Like Jesus kind of went up to the stars and like he just got behind the moon. Oh, I can't see him anymore. <laughs> Heaven is up there somewhere like beyond the sun. Remember, the ascension isn't an endless floating up into outer space. Do you see those stairs? What happens when drummer Joe goes up those stairs? We could say Joe ascends. This is a well-known thought. When a king got back from war, when the king did his job, he ascended the throne. He went up to his massive throne to sit and rule as the king. We are seeing Jesus ascend to his throne. Clouds open up and take him into heaven. I don't think this is a floating up way, way up there. I think... Jesus ascends to another sphere of existence. 
Yes, I like sci-fi and fantasy, but that's not where I'm going here. Dare I say another dimension? Heaven was pictured as all around us, just unable to be seen. A different place, a different domain of existence. And that's why I think the disciples are standing there gazing into heaven. Because where they're standing, I think in some crazy mind-blowing way, heaven has partially opened and they're looking into it. What is that? Jesus ascends the throne by going into the domain that is heaven. And for a moment in time, they got to see it. Oh, that would be cool. So they're standing, as the text says, gazing into heaven. Whoa. Clouds. And then mysteriously, two men appear to them, clothed in white. Surprised that no one says, like, when did you get here? Who are you? Two men appear dressed in white. Their identity is unknown. Most argue that they're angels trying to do something along the lines of what they're wearing, white. Angels will sometimes appear in white. These are angels that look like men. That's possible. It's, it's, it's fine. It could be. There's another theory that interests me at least a little bit. Think with me for a moment. Maybe I should stand over here as Roger does. Don't know. Maybe. Remember that other time? that Luke wrote down on a mountain, heaven opens, clouds envelop Jesus. What I didn't mention is there were two men there as well. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, standing next to Jesus, testifying, this is the one that I, Moses, the law, and that I, Elijah, the prophets, we're seeing all along. I think it's at least possible as they're on another mountain, clouds envelop Jesus, take him into heaven, that the two men, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are there saying, see, he told you all along. Maybe. But again, I find the, the question of these two men a little comical. It's likely due to my lack of maturity. I'm just being honest. But every time in my Bible reading plan, when I come to Acts 1, I chuckle. Verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I imagine myself there and I don't think I'll be able to, I'd be able to help myself. What do you mean? This is my first ascension. <laughs> I've never seen this before. That's heaven, right? I don't know about you two fellas, but we get around on foot. Maybe donkey, not clouds. This is truly a glorious moment. And to the credit of these angels or Moses and Elijah, they're saying, it's time to get to work now. You see the ascension. Go back to Jerusalem, as Jesus said, don't leave, because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in power. And that Jesus is going to come again to you through the Spirit and we're going to get to work. And their response, as we close our time together, I didn't include this in your insert. I just want to read to you the very last words of Luke's gospel, 
which is the same ascension account. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 52. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blesses them. I think the heavens are opened I think the clouds envelop Jesus and he is going into heaven, ascending his throne with his arms outstretched and a smile on his face, giving his people the ironic blessing, the priestly blessing. I'm with you. And while he blessed them, he departed from them and was carried into heaven. And here's what I wanted you to see. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great Joy. We spent our time this morning looking at a salvation accomplished, a mission empowered, and a hope strengthened. In other words, we've looked at the introduction of Acts, the mission statement of Acts, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus. My hope and prayer is that over the course of our study in this wonderful book, this unexpected journey, we would see Jesus just a little bit more clearly. And we would see the glory of the church, the institution that Jesus makes. And in seeing Jesus a little bit more clearly and understanding the church a little bit more, it's been my prayer and will continue to be so that you follow Jesus more boldly and you love his church more fervently. I want us to do what happened to these men and women at this moment in time, that we depart from here to our lives and our works worshiping Jesus and going with great joy. So I ask you, New City, are you ready for this adventure? The adventure that is your life, life with and for Jesus. The adventure of studying the book of Acts together. Are you ready? Are you ready in the words of Tolkien to embark on this journey and to do so wearing a sword, not a walking stick? Let's go. But before we go, we need some food. Before every adventure, before all journeys, we need sustenance for the adventure that lay before us. It's one of the primary reasons that we come to the table each week for spiritual sustenance, where Jesus himself nourishes us from the throne, but he's here and near through his spirit, nourishing our souls for the journey of life here at this table. Friends, this table is for those who are rescued, redeemed people. We say that it's not for perfect people, but honest ones who are trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. If that is you, you've been baptized and you are a member of a gospel preaching church, then come, Come receive strength and be nourished for the unexpected journey that is life with Jesus and for Jesus.